Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. We're moving on a little bit from um, our series on the Holy Spirit. And yet it's still kind of ringing in my ears. I hope it is in yours too. Because the Holy Spirit is God in us. He is ever-present. He is here right now. We thank him for his work. We're going to look today at the passage that Mel read this morning from Matthew chapter 11. And it's split up into two sections. Um, In between the two is um, the passage where Jesus is saying woe to you to certain cities. We're not going to read through that today, but it does have a bearing on on, uh, what Jesus says in, in the passage that we are going to read. And let me tell you a little bit about what happened before in chapter 11. Um, What has happened is uh, some of John's disciples, John the Baptist disciples, have come to Jesus and they are asking him, are you, basically, are you the Messiah? Is what they're asking him. And he tells them, look at what I'm doing. Look at the stuff I'm doing. Tell John about that. Basically, what do you think? <laughs> and then he goes into talking about, about John and commending him for who he is and his ministry and, and his role in Jesus' ministry. And as he shifts from talking about John, and he is continuing to talk about John um, in these verses we're about to read. So let's read them one more time. I want to look at verses 16 through 19, and then later we'll look at the other section. Jesus says, To what can I compare this generation? They're like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling out to others. We played the pipe for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John, the Baptist, came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, here is a glutton and a drunkard, the friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by her deeds. This is the word of the Lord. Playing make-believe 
is part and parcel of being a kid. Uh, in fact, when you go to the pediatrician's office, when your child is young, they'll ask, they'll ask you, they've asked me in a questionnaire, is your child playing make-believe? Is your child pretending and, and um, doing all of that? And if they're not, then there's something going on. Playing make-believe is one of the best parts of childhood, in my opinion. And I smile when I watch my son play with his cars and trucks, as you guys see him do every Sunday. And he's not always just making them zoom around. He's having them interact with each other, um, like sentient beings. And he makes them talk to each other. He gives them silly, high-pitched voices. They apologize to each other for bumping into each other. It's so cute to watch. And it's so amazing to see his imagination at work. And I get nostalgic for the days when I could play pretend. Uh, my sister and I would pretend, play out in the backyard for hours, pretending to be characters from our favorite TV shows and acting out our own original episodes. I remember pretending to be a horse galloping around the yard. Even my candy stash fell victim to my imagination. There was some candy that was so good that I didn't want to eat it right away. So they became my playthings. Tootsie Pops got paired up with each other and suddenly found themselves parents to several bouncing baby dum-dums. I would let them go old and sticky rather than eat them, because what monster would do that? Kids can play pretend with anything, and with nothing. And like most children, I always knew the difference between make-believe and reality. I knew I wasn't really the person or animal I was pretending to be. But when I was playing, I entered fully into that narrative created by my wild imagination. I was in character. And over, but over the course of my preteen and teenage years, I gradually realized that ability had faded away. I'm pretty sure kids have always played make-believe, probably starting with <laughs> Adam and Eve's brood. The kids I grew up with played things like house and school. They played out scenes and took on roles that, that we watched adults in our lives do for real. We played out a real life as we, as we imagined it as kids. And the kids in Jesus, the kids in Jesus' day, would surely have done much the same thing. When they got together, they would play house or synagogue or whatever trade they saw their fathers working at, carpenter or fisherman. They would probably also play festival. There were three of them a year. We were a big deal. Kids today might play Christmas morning. <laughs> Same, the same kind of idea. 
Or kids back then might play wedding, as kids today still do. And with mortality rates being what they were back then, death was something even kids were familiar with, and so I expect they probably played that too. In the beginning of the passage we just read, Jesus tells this generation that they're acting like children who are playing make-believe. They're like the neighborhood kids in the square playing party. They're dancing and spinning around with makeshift instruments. They're eating invisible food and drinking invisible wine and having a grand old time. But the next day, you see them playing funeral. One of them lies as still as he can under a cloth atop of a stretcher that two of his friends are carrying. And the rest of the kids are wailing and crying and singing sad songs as they trudge to the graveside. Everyone is in character and as serious as they can be. On both occasions, lots of people see their pageantry, but no one above a certain age joins in with the merrymaking or with the mourning. Adult passers-by look, maybe are amused, but they recognize it for what it is, kids being kids. They aren't kids anymore. But the kids are upset that no grown-ups will play their game with them. They're upset that the, the adults who see them, like their parents and their neighbors, aren't willing to be assimilated into their little narrative that they've created. And the kids find that frustrating. They don't understand why. Why won't they play with us? And so they complain. We played the pipe for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. This generation, says Jesus, is complaining like these kids. John the Baptist and Jesus were both sent by God, both were faithful to God, both had very different ways of living and ministering, often pretty much complete opposites. But they were one in spirit and purpose. John always spoke very highly of Jesus. Jesus spoke very highly of John in this chapter. They never said anything bad about each other or, or criticized each other's ways of preaching the gospel. But on the whole, their largely religious society wasn't pleased with either one of them. They weren't pleased with John because he was a long-haired weirdo who distanced and deprived himself 
and called even the most powerful people out on their make-believe lives. They didn't like Jesus because he was a party animal, always inviting himself over to people's houses for feasts, where he hung out with a bunch of unclean and unsavory nobodies. Both John and Jesus were too much. Too much something. John was too bold and too strict. Jesus was too gentle and too lenient. But both of them refused to get sucked into the narrative that society has created. Basically, Jesus is telling those who are critical of him and complaining about him, you guys are never going to be happy, no matter what I do, or any of my followers do. He and John and, and his and John's disciples will not allow someone else, even if it's the whole rest of the world, dictate who they should be and what they should do. They won't dance or cry on command. They're too grown up to get immersed in those games. They allow God's narrative, God's narrative, not people's, to direct their lives. And because of that, the world will never be pleased with them. Not even those who profess their faith in the same God. Most people aren't going to be happy no matter what. But Jesus isn't concerned with being liked or not liked. He says in verse 19, Wisdom is proved right by her deeds. I looked at the message paraphrase by Eugene Peterson, and he substitutes that sentence with a well-known idiom. The proof of the pudding is in the eating. You know, the proof is in the pudding. That's how we got short, how he shortened it, but that's the full thing. The proof of the pudding is in the eating. In the kitchen, nobody can tell for sure that what you're making is any good until it's finished cooking and they take the first bite. The meat might be spoiled. You might have put salt instead of sugar. <laughs> the central message of both John and Jesus is the kingdom of God has come near. That is what they both proclaimed. The kingdom of heaven has come near, as in it's still cooking. And we're start, we're, but we're starting to smell the aroma of it. And it smells like promise. When Jesus arrived on the scene, he's the one who popped that bad boy in the oven. And someday, the timer's going to go off. 
And we'll taste and see that maybe it's not what we expected, but that there is a culinary masterpiece. Created by the master chef. I think what Jesus means to say when he says wisdom is proved right by her deeds, he means to say that the end result will show that Jesus' way really is the way. doesn't matter what people think of him. Of course, he wants them to follow him. But he's going to keep on doing what he's doing because he is doing what God has sent him to do. No matter what people say or do in response. Let's look at the second passage. At that time, which is after Jesus is lamenting what's going on in some of these cities who have not repented. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. It's kind of funny to me that shortly after Jesus has been, has been getting on people's case for acting like children, he then says, verse 25, I praise you, Father, because you've hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. The same Greek word isn't used there. I did look that up, but the meaning is close. Actually, the word used here in verse 25 seems to refer to somebody a bit younger even than a child that is playing, running around in the marketplace playing make-believe. More like a baby. A toddler just learning how to walk. I think Jesus is trying to teach us that it's, it's not good to act immature in the faith, pouting and passing judgment on other believers when you should have grown out of that by now. It's not good to be childish like that, especially when you should be beyond that. It is good to approach our Father with the heart and mind of 
a baby with a blank slate. Not even pretending to understand much. Looking to our Father to teach us everything. Everything about everything. Before anyone else can teach you how to think or feel or act, you will learn to do what he does and see the world through his eyes. You will, as scripture says, carry his yoke. Meaning you will only do the work he gives you to do, nothing more and nothing less. Because he knows what you can handle. And he is there to help you. He doesn't give you anything that's too big for the two of you to tackle together. He doesn't add on a bunch of weight that comes with expectations. And in your play, you have your imagination. Your beautiful, God-given, holy imagination will lead you to play. It will lead you to Like most kids who have parents, they look up to to do the things that you see your father doing. Because kids use their imaginations to follow in their parents' footsteps. God gave you an imagination and it is good. We can't let that imagination be shaped by others' expectations, what others expect to see. what others tell you is good and bad and smart and dumb when your father is looking at your work and he's smiling and he's proud of you. The question I want to leave you with is this. I want you to examine yourselves and ask yourselves, is your faith childish? Is my faith childish? And in what way? Do I approach God with immaturity? 
or with innocence. Do I approach him with whining or with wonder? Do I spend time feeling that I was wronged or trusting that he is right? I want to be, I want to be a baby. <laughs> I want to be the kind of person that God takes pleasure in showing his character and what he does and why he does what he does. I want to be the one to whom God invites to see through his eyes. I want to be one who, who uh, slips on his shoes and clomps around the house. I can never grow into those shoes, but I believe those things are pleasing to him. We may have been childish. We may have made mountains out of molehills, as many kids do. Especially when it comes to other people who, who believe as we do, who are Christians, or who have come into our church or who we've encountered on social media. We've gotten our dander up over the smallest stuff, over people who don't want to play the game by the rules that we, that we know. Or maybe we've been victims of childish Christians. And there are many people who have left the church and the faith because of childish Christians. Let's not be those people. Let's take his yoke upon us and learn from him to do the things he does without focusing on on what other people say or think. If he is leading us, we are going the right way. Let's pray together. Lord, I praise you for being our Father, for loving us, for being generous with us, 
for spending time with us to teach us. We thank you for for choosing to reveal yourself to those who come before you as little babies. And not so much those who think they know it all. I thank you for the imaginations that you've given us. I thank you for the way you guide our imaginations. That you use our imaginations to do things that maybe are a little unorthodox. but which usher in your kingdom. Help us not to hurt your reputation. Help us not to be the kind of people who who get upset over the silliest stuff to stuff that in the end doesn't matter. What matters is you and your kingdom and your glory. So help us keep our eyes fixed on you. Our imaginations focused on you so that we can do what Jesus did. We're not going to be liked by everyone. And neither was he. But if you look at us and smile, that's what matters. That is all we need. Thank you, Lord, for being our Father. for teaching us and leading us. We pray each and every day that we would become more and more like you in our character, in the way that we see the world, in the way that we love. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.